0: Hi, oh, we're here with uh, Craig Alexander, a former world champion Ironman triathlete. Um, we're talking nutrition today. Um, I met Craig uh, just after 2011 when he, last, uh, when he won his last Ironman in uh, Kona World Championship.
1: Uh, welcome, Craig. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yes, we met in, I think it was end of 2011 or maybe 2012. Um, I knew of you and I'd seen some of your presentations or lectures that you give often at uh, triathlons around nutrition. Um, I knew a lot of athletes who were working with you as well. And they always spoke highly of you. And obviously, I guess for me, the catalyst to approach you and um, introduce myself and and, and get some help was around that race in Kona in 2011. The history books show that I won and I did. uh, but it it was a a challenging race for me nutritionally. Um, For those who watched the race or the coverage on NBC, they would have seen that I I was stopped in my tracks with two kilometers to go uh, with cramping. And I've been fortunate throughout my career not to suffer too many uh, cramps. Uh, I felt I was always on top of things with regards to my nutrition and hydration as much as I could be in those days with what we knew. Um, and also, I guess rationing my effort levels in those races, understanding that in that climate, there's a few contributing factors. Um, but in 2011, I just went right to the wall, and I started cramping with about, or well, getting twinges. The first onset of cramping with about seven kilometers to go. I was getting mild cramps about five or four kilometers to go, and yeah, I had to stop and walk with two kilometers to go. So, I think cramping is one of the few things in endurance sport that's catastrophic and that it can stop you in your tracks and end your race. So, For me, that was, I guess, the catalyst to come up and introduce myself and and ask a few questions around maybe the things I was doing well and, and maybe the things I could improve on or things I wasn't doing well, things that I hadn't even thought about.
0: Well, that was, interestingly, I was standing on the corner of uh, Queen Kay and Palani when you were there locked up and I'm thinking, oh, is he actually gonna be able to get going again? Because it was, massive muscle grabbing, Mm. um, that just stopped you in your tracks. Um, and then, you know, you somehow released them and you, you got down Pilani and then, you know, I didn't see you after that, but, uh, obviously you got to the line and and won your third Ironman world championship. Um, and that was the thing too, is that, um, only four weeks prior to that, you'd won the 70.3 world championships in Vegas. Which was very a very hot, hot day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like Craig said, he we he introduced himself and we spoke about um, that particular race, 2011, um, and why did that happen when it hadn't happened in previous events? Um, So, and what I'd been doing and what I've done for many years is um, analyzing sweat analysing the volume of sweat an athlete loses, but importantly the concentration of sodium in that sweat. So from that um, we did the testing and uh, we've learned a bit about your physiological makeup and the reasons that you probably didn't experience a lot of muscle cramping prior to that was the fact that you have a very low sweat rate. So the volume of sweat that you lose is so low. So What that means basically is you're able to manage your losses better than Mm. the athletes around you. Um, You might be drinking the exact same volume as they are, but their losses are greater. Therefore the percentage of loss and the impact that has on muscle function is going to impact or affect them earlier than it is for yourself. Um, But I think 2011 was probably a combination of having coming off, having come off that win in Vegas where it was so hot. And then, you know, maybe even gone into that race with some deficiencies mm. that you hadn't um, in previous uh, races.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I think, I mean, look, I studied as a, as a physiotherapist many moons ago, and we learn about physiology, and I had a basic understanding, um, probably less than half of 1% of what you know about it, but. <clears throat> understood the things that you needed to be mindful of in terms of hydration fueling electrolytes those sorts of things Um, you know for the most part of my career though we weren't most athletes couldn't get a sweat test done unless you knew somebody who worked in a lab or um, you had access to a a research laboratory you couldn't get a sweat test done so a lot of it was worked out around trial and error Mm. which is not a bad thing I think it makes you very it, it, it in tunes you well with what the thing, you know, you, you pay a lot of attention to mm. effort levels, sweat rates, or what your perceived sweat rate is. You know, we used to do things like weigh ourselves pre and post training and, and that sort of thing to work out volumes. But you were really always just starting with the theory of someone. I would always start with, you know, someone my size, my weight, what the general ranges are. And I'd start in the middle of that and then work from there. And I'd try and do race simulations in climates that were very similar to what I would be racing in. Um, Of course, it's very hard to mimic the length and the intensity of an Ironman or a half Ironman without actually doing an Ironman or a half Ironman. And you don't do the race in training to prepare for the race. So you're always coming in, there's there's some uncertainty about the accuracy of of the numbers that you've come come up with. Um, What I did understand from my training was, I, I mean, I didn't know that I had a great sweat rate, but I understood implicitly how the intensity of performance impacted on um, your race in a climate like that as well. You know, as as you go through a longer race in a hot climate, you get dehydrated, there's less lower blood volume. You know, you're exercising at quite a high percentage of max or of threshold or close to threshold, that's the goal. You wanna keep steady state close close to threshold, your threshold heart rate. So what your body's trying to do is deliver oxygen to the working muscles. Um, preferentially, that's where the blood shunts to, which means there's not as much passing your gut to absorb the calories and the, the fluid that you're putting in. So I was one thing I was mindful of in those races like Vegas and Kona was that I had to get as fit as I could in the lead-up to those races. Um, and then in the race itself, try and keep my effort as steady as possible without those spikes in, in intensity, um, but also in a, in a hot, humid climate, I may have to dial my effort back 5 or 10% on what I could do in a cooler climate. And I was very disciplined around that. And that meant often in races letting people go in the race, but understanding that in a seven and a half, 8.5-hour eight, eight race that your goal is to get the most out of yourself physiologically, and part of that is nutrition, a big part of that, probably the biggest part. I mean, I know in the Ironman races I did, the back end of the race is more about nutrition and muscle breakdown than it is about cardiovascular fitness. They're your limiting factors. So I guess where I had an advantage was I understood that. I certainly didn't have the in-depth understanding around exactly what my numbers were, and that would have been hugely helpful. But I mean, we see in the evolution of all sports, technology comes in, knowledge improves, the way we implement that knowledge. And You know, that's what I was very impressed with when I spoke to you and and you suggested that I do my first ever sweat test. I just thought this would have been just so handy for me to know in my Ironman racing days. It just takes the guesswork out of it, knowing exactly what your losses are in a certain climate around the fluid, the electrolytes, and also the calorie, your calorie burn rate. Mm. You can set a nutrition strategy. You know, they say in triathlon that transition is is the fourth discipline. Well, if that's the case, nutrition is the fifth discipline. And your whole performance is based upon, your success and failure is based upon how well you hydrate and you feel your body, period. Mm. I mean, you and I have stood out on the Queen K the last five or six years, watching great athletes fall apart because it's not a cardiovascular limitation. It's nutritionally, they're they're depleted. Hydration's not on point. And, And that's where for me, Speaking to you, I saw that that, that's the next frontier in in endurance racing. I mean, we've seen developments around equipment and and training protocols, recovery. The thing that's often neglected, that's the most important thing, is nutrition. That's where the advancements need to come in and and athletes really need to be on point with, with their planning and their strategies in their training because, I mean, a great performance is based upon months and months of consistent training. So that implies great recovery and training performances for months. So for me straight away that speaks to having your nutrition on point throughout the whole training not yeah. just the race day yeah. so
0: yeah exactly so you've 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 spoken about understanding your numbers and when we say understanding your numbers we mean the volume of sweat that you lose and that changes that changes based on two factors or well, the main two factors is the intensity and you talked about intensity and you talked about maintaining uh, a certain intensity based on how you've trained. And that's super important for Ironman because, um, and what you also mentioned, was not spiking, not, not riding at someone else's pace, mm-hmm. but riding at the pace, you, whether it's wattage or whether it's average heart rate that you've trained to, which makes perfect sense. You've got to take that, well, you, you're still, you're still competitive, but you're taking that away going, right, I'm still in a race, but there's a long way to go yet. You know, I'm not even off the bike. So that's that's the. I think for any uh, triathlete that's training for an Ironman or has done Ironman in the past, they need to be very, very diligent about the pace that they hold on the bike, knowing what their average heart rate should be or how much wattage they need to push out for that 180 kilometres.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, just watching the race, I think it should be... I guess one of your, your, your primary mental engagements around race days, knowing what your level is and, and, and diligently sticking to it in terms of an effort level, as you say, whether that be heart rate or power, whatever, mm. whatever parameter you choose to use. What I've noticed is I think in the age group racing, the amateur athletes, they have no excuse really for not sticking to their own numbers other than a lack of discipline and, and same in, in the women's race. I think the girls are very good at it. Um, partly because I think they're just more disciplined and have less ego than the boys, but also partly, in, in fairness to the boys, the dynamic of the men's race is different and you have to take that into consideration. If if you watch Kona or any major championship, there just tends to be a higher concentration of men coming out towards the front. So you get that dynamic on the bike in the beginning where you do have to accelerate and relax and accelerate more than just keeping, dialing your pace up or your effort level and staying there. Um, and it can be hard to do. I know I've had this conversation with athletes who are racing there now, and I just think watching the race, and I guess the dynamic of the race plays into this implicitly because there's the, there's a draft rule in effect. It's, it's meant to be a non-drafting race, and the draft rule is 12 meters. Even if you're riding legally at 12 meters, there's still a benefit to being in that group. So a lot of athletes have to make the decision, do I accelerate or, or push a little harder than I know I should just to get in this group. But then I guess the upside will be once I'm in the group, even at a legal 12 meters, I'm gonna be saving um, energy. And it's a tough one. I don't have the answer to it because I haven't really been in the race for five or six years now. I know the last couple of years I raced there. The only technical part of the course, and by technical, I mean, it's not really a technical bike course kind but there are a few corners and accelerations is in town. And that's where the highest concentration of athletes are together coming out of the water. So everyone's trying to position, stay out of draft zones. You have to accelerate aggressively to overtake people. That's burning glycogen. And these are all things I guess that are counterproductive to a steady state, long-term burn, and, and the way you most efficiently use your energy over an eight-hour event. Um, so yeah, I guess speaking from my own experiences in Kona, I, I would train to be able to withstand those surges and I'd even put a few of them in. I know certainly in 2011 I did. I accelerated at the start of the bike to, to create some separation. But I was always committed to the last sort of three hours on the bike being very steady. Mm. Um, you know, you do do some damage, but it's, it's one of those risk-reward situations. You, you weigh it up. Um, so they're, they're the challenges that athletes face. Because in theory, we consider and talk about the best way your body to burn fuel over a long period of time particularly in an event like that but the reality is sometimes the dynamics of the race play into your your strategies as well but i think notwithstanding any of that it's just so important and and athletes these days really have no excuse because of the portable sweat test which is something athletes of my generation we didn't have Mm. and i think it's just one of you know you see so many advancements in sport and in technology and how it um impacts performance and i don't think any any has been greater than the portable sweat test where for you know something that's such a simple protocol and, and relatively cheap i think very cheap financially when you consider what athletes are paying to enter these races and for other equipment that's such a great investment you get such a huge return on your investment there because of the knowledge you get if you perform that sweat test in a climate very similar to the race you're going to mm-hmm. perform in or you want to perform in Um, you know your numbers precisely and there's no guesswork around your nutrition. And it just Mm. takes, I guess, one of the unknowns. It doesn't have to be an unknown anymore. It can be something that you dial in precisely around how much fluid per hour you need. And it's, as as you know, and you were the one who told me, it's not one size fits all. Mm. You can have two athletes of identical height and weight who sweat differently. You can have two athletes of identical height and weight who sweat the same volume, but the composition of that sweat's different. And they also have different burn rates with their carbohydrate. So, you know, you can look to other athletes and I used to, to see what their nutrition strategies were, but ultimately you have to work out what your nutrition strategy is. There's only one athlete that has your nutrition, nutritional fingerprint and, and you need to work out what that is and you can now.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's spot on. And, that's, and you mentioned again, uh, another thing that, uh, about the environmental conditions, that your hydration strategy is going to change. It can't be fixed volume of fluid um, that might work for you at you know between 15 and 20 degrees, but if it's 10 or 25 mm. or 30 degrees, it's either um, going to be way too much or it's not going to be enough. So um, having that understanding that your hydration is always going to change, and you're spot on it, the concentration of sodium in sweat is the, the range is massive. Mm. Um, I've tested over 1,500 athletes. 293 milligrams of sodium is the lowest I've seen. And that's, that's very low and it's, mm. it's rare, um, to as high as 3,084 milligrams, wow. so there's a, a huge disparity mm. between, but, um, and that's, and that's based on the athlete losing one liter of sweat. So in one liter of sweat, there's that, that number of, that amount of sodium mm. in that sweat, so, but what does change? is the volume of sweat that you lose. And that's based on the conditions that you're experiencing. And um, from all the research that we've done and all the testing that we've done, there's gonna be athletes that will naturally um, perform well in the heat. And, and that's your physiological makeup is that you'll have an advantage over other athletes purely because the amount of sweat that you lose, which, and that's basically the water And that water that ends up on your skin for thermoregulation to keep a safe core temperature, that water comes from the uh, water component of your blood. Your blood's about 80% water. So basically what that means is that you're not losing as much blood volume as another athlete. And if you can um, control that or or manage that better, then your muscles are just going to function better for a longer period of time. Um, and then you 've got athletes who have a very high sweat rate, um, and this is where you talk about playing to your strengths and in that case, athletes that do have a very high sweat rate should look at cooler conditions, cooler races where the percentage of loss isn't going to be as great, and that percentage of loss isn't going to impact on you know how well the muscles are going to function um, and then uh, we talk about the sodium concentration where you know some athletes have a low sodium concentration and some have a very high sodium concentration. Now, what you can do now is you can manage that a lot better um, by understanding those numbers first and then addressing um, those particular numbers based on your physiological makeup. So you know, then, and, and you, you spoke about it earlier too, is that it's understanding your stomach mm. and what it can tolerate. Um, and we're we're governed by our digestive system, and you're talking about you know the blood and the stomach and all that sort of thing. And the fact is that we will always lose more than our stomach can process. It's just
1: it's just how we. So it's a slippery slope. It is, yeah. You There's just got all... to manage the correct. Lessons.
0: Yeah, there'll always be a gap between how much you lose and how much your stomach can process. Um, obviously, in cooler conditions, that gap is a lot less. Mm. As you get into hot, humid conditions, um, and we talk about we talk about Kona, but then, you know, living in Australia, a lot of athletes go and race in the Philippines, they race in uh, Thailand, Malaysia, where the heat and humidity is brutal, mm. and that gap between how much you're losing and how much your stomach can process becomes massive, and that's where you talk about going okay, I just can't ride the same intensity as I do in cooler conditions as I can, as I would like to Mm. in hot humid conditions. And that's where having that understanding if I can minimize percentage of loss on the bike, roll into T2, having um, minimize those deficiencies, I'm more likely to have a better marathon off the back of that. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, that's where you talk about understanding your numbers and learning what they're likely to be in those different conditions.
1: Yeah, you know, I just think it's so. I mean, you hear people say you can only control what you can control. So I think you need, as an athlete, you need to have a checklist. And there's no excuse really for not knowing your numbers now. Mm. I mean, ten years ago, maybe because it was hard to to get the accurate numbers, unless, like I said, unless you went to a laboratory. But also discipline around how you uh, execute on race day, keeping that effort level steady. Knowing, I mean, unfortunately, whether you like it or not, triathlon's a summer sport. Mm. Most of the races are hot. I mean, every year now, the two of the races I love to watch on the net are Frankfurt and Roth. They're they're brutally hot. Mm. You know, so Europe in summer's hot. North America in summer's hot. When I was based in North America, we used to race quite a bit in Central America. Mexico, brutally hot. Mm. Um, Kona's probably not the hottest, not even close to the hottest race. You will do, but... I think there's a few uh, circumstances that conspire. It's the World Championship, so it's the highest quality of field. So that pushes the intensity level up. Mm. It's also a long race. So there's another, um, I guess, stress on the body. Um, And it is a hot, humid climate. I mean, granted, Kona in October is not as hot as Kona. And if you go to do the 70.3 race in June, that's brutal. Mm. It's quite a few degrees... I looked somewhere, it was an Almanac, a temperature thing, and I think the average temperature of Kona in October is about 28 degrees. Am I correct in saying that? 27, 28? 28 with a 65% humidity. With 65. That, that's quite mm. mild. I mean, you and I have stood out on the Queen K, and I don't want to say it's not a hot race, but mm. if you go to Thailand, I've raced in Phuket, I've raced in Mexico. It's brutal. You, you mm. step out of your hotel, and you're dripping wet in sweat already and dying under the, you know, if you're in the direct sunlight. So I just think like anything, you need to understand what the demands are that are gonna be placed upon your body. And that transfer of training or or specificity of training, I would always go to Kona to do training camps. I mean, I would do the things that would help, I guess, control the controllables. I would control the things that I I had um, the ability to control, like, try to stimulate those changes physiologically that you can get by training in a climate like that. Um, you know, that change in sweat rate, um, increased blood plasma volume by training in a climate like that. I would often do a, a protocol in a spa, I mean, in a sauna, sorry, mm. before I'd go to Vegas, which was, I'd, I'd come out of, often I'd come out of a Northern Hemisphere summer training in Colorado, which is can be hot, but it's a very dry heat. And, but Kona's humidity, so I'd, I'd, I'd get in, if, when I was trying to acclimate for Las Vegas, which was also a dry heat, I would get in the dry sauna, but then I would get into a, a wet sauna after that, a steam room, to try and, I guess, just subject my body to those stresses that I'm going to have to perform under. And, you know, I would do indoor bike trainer sessions or treadmill sessions where I'd set up, try and... Um, simulate that humid climate i put the, the clothes dryer on or just put heaters on and wear clothing on, on my body so that that micro, i guess climate around the skin mm. the so temperatures generate will, more heat absolutely yeah. so i mean there are all the things that, that i did routinely that mm. other people i guess didn't do or didn't think were um, of, of any value but again from i guess my physio training i understood that specificity and that transfer of training and, and you need to subject your body in training to those stresses that it's going to be subjected to on race You're day. You're likely to
0: experience on race day. Absolutely,
1: yeah. and I also understood that you know, the first part of the bike in Kona or any half Ironman or any race really is going to be explosive. Mm. So you need to reflect that in your training, but then be able to dial in a steady state effort after that and, and just be disciplined and stay, stay on that. Um, you may have to give up three or four minutes in the last 70 or 80 kilometers on the bike but the end goal is not where you get off the bike it's running a marathon and if you have to give up three or four minutes in the last half of the bike but you run 10 minutes quicker then the net result mm. is going to be better yeah um you know i i just tried to maximize the things and I, I guess i was lucky with those sweat rates but triathlon is it's a summer sport you have to be able to operate in those climates. And, and if you look at the athletes traditionally who've done well, um, they've, they've I guess they've been blessed particularly in, in very, very extreme, extremely hot conditions. They've been blessed with that, those yep, same similar traits. Makeup, yeah. So, yep. uh, but they're also the athletes who are the best prepared and, and simulate those stresses in training. And I mean, we have to do some cooler races to Ironman Melbourne. Mm. I remember the first year I did that. It was, I mean, I think the water temperature cold. was 17 or 18 degrees and yeah. the ambient was like 12 or 13 degrees. So, yeah. um, you know, and, and again, just being in tune with your body, I understood in cooler climates that the, the messages I was getting back from my body in those races like Melbourne or the cooler races were that I wasn't as thirsty, but I felt I needed more calories mm. because I think, you know, sometimes you're cold and you're shivering as well and, and your body's burning through more calories to try and stay warm as well as trying to generate that forward motion. Um, So they're all things that I guess I indirectly understood without knowing the exact numbers. I I was just in tune with my body in that regard and I was lucky I paid attention to those. Your your body's very smart. It gives you messages and signals if you listen. Mm. Sometimes you're thirsty, sometimes you feel like you're about to, as we call it, hunger flat, you need more calories. And when you're in that position, your body's very receptive to taking calories on board. And I know having conversations with you, you always said to me, you know, the, the perfect scenario is knowing your numbers and feeding your body the right way in a consistent fashion throughout the course of an event. If, if you underdo the calories, that's not as catastrophic as overdoing it where you put in too many calories and then you, you, your gut shuts down and that's the end of your day. Mm. If, if you're in tune with your body and you're listening to the signals that it's giving you, You feel you're getting hungry and you may be getting a little weak. You might be on the low side in terms of the carbohydrates you're putting in. You can put them in and your body will will use them. It's very receptive. Mm. So that was always my thought process as well. On the calorie side of things or grams of carbohydrates, I guess it depends on where you are in the world, what terminology people like to use. Um, Your body's receptive to, to burning carbohydrates if you're on the low side of where you should be, provided you don't slip too far. Hmm. Um, so but I mean I guess getting back to the whole point of our conversation today you don't really need to guess anymore though I mean that's one of the great things I mean having a portable sweat test where you can jump on a treadmill or jump on the bike for an hour at whatever effort level you hope to maintain in your half Ironman your Ironman, your Olympic distance race hopefully in a climate that's quite similar to the race you want to perform at you get very accurately um feedback around all the the main requirements as you mentioned before the the volume of fluid that you lose the concentration of electrolytes and mm-hmm. and the the amount of carbohydrates that you need to put in every yeah, calorie hour. So, expenditure yeah so it's it's just it's, it's the evolution of our sport i guess and one of the great things i mean we see so many gimmicks and so much of technology across all walks of life and it comes into sport and you wonder what is really useful in terms of performing and actually going quick because that's the end goal mm. and what is actually a gimmick. But nutrition is one of those things that's just non-negotiable. You, you you can't afford to get it wrong. And it's the, the one thing I see, I mean, I, I'm the ambassador of a, a lot of events these days. Um, I probably watch more endurance events than I participate in. And the one thing you see is these extremely fit athletes who have, qualified for a major race and have spent hours upon hours each week training for a race but end up not finishing it's got nothing really to do with their level of fitness it's Mm. it's more to do with either a muscle breakdown later in the race or a a nutritional deficiency they just haven't got their nutrition right and Mm. yeah it's such a shame that something that's so easy to address these days it should be your highest priority really Mm.
0: You know, I I just want to skip back because you talk about heat acclimation and we've done a lot of work, uh, particularly in places that you mentioned like Thailand and Philippines and uh, where where it is very hot and humid. And what we found was that after testing an athlete um, prior to arriving in those um, hot, humid conditions is that similar numbers recorded in the hot humid conditions but after a four or six week block we're finding that um, even though they're losing the same amount they've got a greater blood volume yeah so you similar losses but you're starting with a, a, a greater amount so the mess uh, the uh, percentage of loss isn't as great hmm. so that was that's interesting about you know you hear things about oh your sodium concentration in your blood drop, sorry, and your sweat drops and you don't sweat as much and all sorts of things. But what we've actually found from our own research is that your numbers pretty much remain similar, Mm -hmm. but what changes is that you have a greater blood volume and that that percentage of loss isn't as great and you're able to perform a bit better in heat than you had that four week prior to when you first started there. So that was an interesting thing too. And you mentioned about calories, we don't have a fuel gauge. So but nearly everyone's got heart rate monitors now. Yeah. And you can tell, you can look at your you, you can look at your watch now from a from any session that you do and it'll tell you how many calories you expended in that in that session. And a calorie is just a unit of energy. Yeah. So how many units of energy do I expend each hour performing at that intensity? Yeah. So that gives you an understanding of how much fuel you're actually expending. We then come back to the fact that we're always gonna lose or expend more energy than our yeah. or more calories in our stomach can, can process. So it's then understanding those numbers and then working out, okay, I know my numbers. I understand how much sweat I lose in those conditions. I know the concentration of my sodium. You multiply your sweat rate by the concentration of sodium that tells you how much sodium you're losing an hour. Yeah. It's a very simple calculation. And I know that I expend this many calories at that intensity. So what I want to do now, I've got these, I've collected these numbers now. What is my stomach able to tolerate? And this is another thing with endurance athletes is that you can, you can have the best engine in the world. You can push out all this power and you can run, you know, three minute Ks off the, uh, three thirty off the, off the bike, regardless of, you know, but. If you don't have a good stomach, and your losses keep building up, it doesn't matter how good your engine is. Your mm. engine is if you're not fueling it properly, mm. or if you're not if you're not able to fuel it as well as someone else is. So there's all these physiological um, differences between athletes. It's not just what you're losing, but it's also you know
1: how well your digestive
0: system functions.
1: Let me ask a question with, around the ability to absorb calories are you able to train your body to get a bit better or is that just a set number that's um, always going to be the case regardless of training and, and time and years put in? And yeah. I guess, is there any adaptation that takes place there where um, you can train your body to get better at that or some sort of metabolic effect or physiological effect that happens or is it just the efficiency and the absorption is, is set? Yeah, it, well, it,
0: it's pretty much set, but... What you can do, and, and the reason that we separate calories and in our, in our hydration, it's the, it's the number one reason, because it's what we've always focused on is making sure we don't compromise the stomach. So if you're relying on your calories in your drink, which still the majority of people, athletes do, is that they're locked into a set volume of fluid. So they have to drink a large volume mm. of fluid to access those calories. So what we've what we've learned now that if you separate your calories, so you take your calories out of your drink, so your hydration becomes just hydration. Yep. So that way, you can have the amount of sodium in that fluid that you need yep. that, that, that is uh, addressing your unique requirements. But also to be able to drink a volume yep. based on how much you lose yep. based on the conditions that you're experiencing. So that way... You know, someone might have to drink 750 ml an hour, but you might only need to drink 200 ml an hour. Yeah. So that way, and and for someone like yourself, you don't need to drink as much as what other athletes need to to try and address their losses. So that way, straight away, we're not forcing them to drink a volume of fluid to access calories. So you drink an amount that you require based on the conditions. But then from a calorie perspective... Um, you know, whether it's it gels or bars or you know, a combination of both or whatever it might be, you've got your calories set and that's set based on how fast you go. It's not how much you weigh, mm. it's about how much fuel you're actually expending by the data that you've collected that's right on your wrist every session that you do. So, all the numbers are, or well, some of the numbers are already there mm. and not difficult to access. So, that way, um You can control your hydration, um, and that way you're not compromising the stomach by drinking too much, but then have your calories separate that whether it's five degrees or thirty five degrees, um, you're consuming the same amount of calories that um, you know that works best for you. The other good thing about that separation is that sometimes your stomach's just not going to behave how it did the race before. So whether it's, you need to back off on your hydration or need to change things with calories, you can make those changes mm-hmm. accordingly. <clears throat> yeah. When you've got, um, all your hydration and calories in the one bottle, yeah. you're locked in. You can't make those changes. So yeah, it, it's just something that, uh, the stomach and the digestive system, which is extraordinarily complex and everyone's is different. It's, it's, it's it's the second brain. There's hundreds of hundreds of millions of neurons that um, recognise things differently, and you know whether it's a, a an ingredient or whatever it might be. Um, our stomachs or digestive system is the senses are heightened at mm. elevated heart rate. Yeah. So it's such an important organ that you don't want to be just oh, do you know I'll just drink this much and not actually. Have some understanding of all that work you've put in. You go, oh, well, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll just drink that and, you know, I don't really know how much I'm losing. I don't really know how much my stomach can tolerate, but I'll, I'll just drink that amount anyway and we'll,
1: let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, well, that was the first thing that I guess I noticed when I heard you speak the first time seven years ago, eight years ago, whenever it was, that you had separated the carbohydrate, the fueling from the hydration. And I thought that makes sense because yeah, some races are hotter than others. Um, the hydration requirements are gonna be a little different, but the carbohydrate requirements to be the same. So you were kind of like an equalizer, a sound equalizer. You can dial anything up and down as you need it. And it made complete sense that that was, that was the way forward. Um, just because, like you said, because of the way the stomach works and the way our bodies work. So, I mean, I think that's one of the the unique things, partnered with the fact then you were also doing the sweat testing. So not only were you saying, you know, we cater for the way the body works in different climates, you're actually, you know, you sent me a sweat test and I was able to access my own numbers immediately, doing a one-hour indoor bike trainer session, taking that patch off my arm, putting it in the container and posting it back to you. And, you know, a couple of days later I got a complete readout with exactly what it almost made me wanted to come out of Ironman retirement and do another Kona. <laughs> Cause I just, I never had that information. It was trial and error. Like I, like I said too. And and I, what I found too, I think as I progressed through a, I guess an Ironman build or a prep and I got fitter physically, nutritionally I changed. I got more efficient as well. I would find I didn't need as many calories Um, so there were those physiological changes. So what I, I guess what I would do is towards the back end of an Ironman prep when I would do my race simulation, which is, again, you can't do an Ironman to prepare for an Ironman, but you typically, you do a long ride with Ironman paced efforts towards the back end of it at the back half of it. And then you run off the bike for 45 minutes or an hour or an hour 20 at your goal marathon pace Mm -hmm. in the Ironman, in the race and in the climate. You know, I would I would really I guess road test my nutrition plan in that in that session. But there's still a lot of guesswork involved there. Because you know, I'd get to the end of the session and I'd try and evaluate, well, how did I feel? I mean I guess you could weigh yourself and look at what your losses were, but just so much guesswork. Whereas now you don't need any of that. You can actually and I think that's the key, understanding that it's not one size fits all. Physiologically we're all different and even within ourselves at the start of an Ironman prep to the middle to the end of one, we change nutritionally and how efficient we get. So to do a sweat test under load and under stress towards the end of an Ironman build up and know exactly what your requirements are going to be on race day, I think for me that's the game changer. That's one thing that the Ironman athletes of today have that I guess the athletes of 20 years ago or even 10 years ago didn't have. like I said, a fortunate few would get to go to a laboratory and do a test, but it's just accessible to everybody now. And there's really no excuse um, when you see how much it costs and the information you get from it. There's no excuse not to do it. It should be, I think, when every athlete's planning their their season and their year and their build-up qualification, what what their goal races are, they need to actually factor in a couple of sweat tests, maybe at least two, I would suggest, throughout the course of, of a season Um, because yeah we do change I think throughout as we get more efficient and it's information that you need to have it's 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 sort of a non-negotiable these days I think if you're gonna if you're going to spend all that time and effort and money qualifying for a Kona or 70.3 worlds or you mightn't even have aspirations that high you just might want to do an Ironman or a half Ironman well you know one of the major stumbling blocks or challenges is going to be nutrition so that should be the first thing that you really need to get in order before you even worry about bikes and um, running shoes and all that other stuff. I think certainly there are other things that impact performance. and But 90 to 95% of performance has always been the training and nutrition. All the other equipment things are sort of like the cherry on top, I believe. I think there's so many things that you need to do your due diligence around before you even get to those other things. And notwithstanding a bike fit, a bike fit's very important. It's so much of your performance is obviously how comfortable you are on the bike and being able to run off the bike and being aerodynamic. So I, I believe that's a non-negotiable as well, but understanding your body's nutritional requirements in a, in a particular climate and in a particular point in your season, I think is a non-negotiable. I mean, the athletes I work with or that I advise before we even get down to the nuts and bolts of periodizing training, we need to make sure that those, those things are taken care of the right way. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Now,
0: mate, heading into this season, there's a bit going on with the coronavirus and all mm. that sort of stuff. What have you got planned for the rest of the year, mate, with racing?
1: That's a good question. I had, the last few years, since, since I haven't done Ironman racing, my, my years have kind of taken the same structure, I guess. I do, whereas we used to move to the Northern Hemisphere for five or six months in the middle of the year. We don't do that anymore. Um, My wife's back at work and loving it. Um, My children are in school. My eldest is in year 10, giving us a lot of attitude, which is a lot of fun. We've got, uh, we've obviously got three kids all in school, three different schools. So most of the time we're in, we're in Sydney in Australia these days. So I guess that's the main change, but I still love to train. I mean, it's in my blood and I love to race when I get the chance as well. So the last few years, notwithstanding 2017, I had a broken collarbone. Oh, that's right. But 2018, I think I did four or five races, and last year I did five races. I was able to win three of them and get a second and a fifth. So as a competitive person, I don't think that desire to compete ever leaves you. Mm. Um, But for me, one of the things is when I compete, I want to race good people, the best people, and I want to make sure I'm in my best shape, whatever that looks like these days. So... Typically what happens is June, July, I do a lot of travel promotionally. I head to North America or Europe and do a lot of appearances um, or brainstorming with sponsors around R&D, those sorts of things. So my my trips to North America or to the Northern Hemisphere these days are more those sorts of trips rather than training trips. I don't get to go to Boulder and train like I used to, which I loved, and I do miss it. Mm. I do miss it a lot, but... um, my, my peak training period these days is the Australian summer because there's no travel mm. and we're at home. So typically for me, I get through the Kona trip. Um, the last couple of years, I've been an ambassador for Ironman Malaysia, which is the end of October. October yeah. So I go to Kona for seven days or 10 days. I'm home a week and then I go up to Malaysia for a week. By the time I get, get home and, and there's not really... My fitness levels at a point where I'm, I won't be ready to race before mm. Christmas. So I tend to just sort of ease back into the training, do a lot of stuff with the kids, and then around December get ramp my training right up. So December, January, I train. Then my peak training periods, and and then train uh, race. Sorry, earlier in the year. So the last couple of years, my race schedule has been either Huskisson, which is a big triathlon mm-hmm. in Australia, or Geelong. I did Geelong this year. I haven't done it for five or six years. A um, race in the Philippines. Um, In the past, it's been Subic Bay, which has been in in March. or Which is brutally hot. Very, very hot. One of the hottest Mm. races you'll do. Mm. Or uh, Davao in the Philippines in March. The last two years, I've raced there. Fast forward to April, I've done a race in China the last couple of years, which I, I won last year and I finished second is that Olympic distance? That's a half high, man. That's a half. That's right. a 70.3. Oh, yes. Yep. So I've done that. I finished second to Alistair Brownlee two years ago. It was my second race back from the Broken Collarbone. Mm. Uh, and then I've done Busseldon in, in May, um, mm. which the last couple of years has been the Australian Long Course Champs and also just a great race in its own right. Take mm. the title away. It's, just, it's one of the biggest 70.3s in the Southern Hemisphere in terms of participation. And I know a race you know well being from... Yeah. Western Australia, it's just a great race. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of tri clubs get out there and support on race day, and so that's been my race schedule. So all my racing's been done and dusted by May, early May, yeah. and then I get on the promotional trip. This year, as you mentioned, with the coronavirus, I think mm. there's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of events are being postponed or cancelled, yeah, and rightly so. I think community health has to take precedence over our recreational activities, and mm. you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around the virus and is it being contained is it still spreading so i think a lot of races they're, they're just being postponed um, so yeah I, I trained december january february raced in geelong and but the race in Deval, Um yeah so the race in Davao was meant to be my next one march 22nd or 23rd that's been postponed and obviously the race up in china um, Leo zhou which is a great race um really enjoyed racing there the last couple of years it's always attracted a really competitive field and kind of a beautiful course actually um, that's well I won't be going up there in April mm. so yeah there's a bit of uncertainty around um, my race schedule, no schedule. and what's, yeah. what's next but yeah I mean, I'm, I'm pretty relaxed with it these days I mean I think I'm fortunate I'm, I'm 47 this year and I still get to race as a pro it's I think my 25th or 26th year as a professional athlete so mm. But it's not my day-to-day priority, training and racing. Mm. Um, I'm lucky to be involved in a few different ventures, and um, you know, I feel my main obligation is to my sponsors these days. Uh, for the longest time, I was allowed to just travel around and train and race, and that was the priority. And was fortunate enough to get great results that my sponsors, I guess, could leverage. Now I feel the leverage comes from just the association of me I guess helping promote um, promote different companies, promote their products and, you know, things that I feel would add value to an athlete's training or nutritional regime, whatever. I mean, for me, it's always been about performance. Performance first, that's the most important thing. You know, the sponsorships and the money come secondary to, you know, you partner with with companies that help you go quicker. That's what, that's what racing's all about for me. It's about yeah. getting from A to B, as quickly as, as fast possible, as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it's pretty simple. That mm. that that's the beginning and the end of the equation for me. And then you you utilize equipment, nutrition. I mean, whether it be bikes, wetsuits, wheels, recovery protocols, whatever whatever helps you to that end of going quicker. So mm. um, yeah, so my racing schedule's been knocked around. So yeah, still uncertain as to what what races I can jump into. It kind of makes sense to race up in asia from february through to may because when you train through an australian summer particularly Mm. in sydney our our summers have been brutally hot and humid yeah so i think you talk about that acclimation and those physiological changes and adaptations you get Mm. if you train through december january you get those adaptations so then you can go up to the philippines where the climate is very extreme but Mm. you're you're very well adapted and acclimated same going to china or, or thailand and you know, I think Asia is one of those regions like South America that I think traditionally in triathlon, Europe and North America has always been strong. Mm. As has Oceania, Australia and New Zealand. We have mm. a a rich tradition and history of racing. Forty year history of racing. I think Man New Zealand was on last weekend. It was their thirty fifth anniversary. Yeah. Man Australia this year. It's their thirty fifth anniversary. So Australia and New Zealand, we have a long history and tradition of racing. Mm. But these other regions like South America and Asia are really exploding. So it's been exciting to see as someone who has been involved in the sport for a long time, racing in those places and just going to those places yeah. um, to promote. It's very exciting. I think triathlon truly is global. Um, you just have to get on social media. There's, there's races in every corner of the globe now, mm. and it's awesome to see. So yeah. I don't know where. I mean, I know I've got a trip to. I don't know when I'll be racing next. I know I've got a trip to the US um, mid to late June and Canada. Right. Um, but that's just
0: promo It's not racing though. No, either. no racing or training.
1: Yeah. More, more promotional yeah. um, activities. Doing some things with Newton Running and also with Argon eighteen bikes yep. um, up in their headquarters in Montreal and around. They have a big race in Canada, Mont Tremblant late. Yep. Late June, so I'll get, get to that and do some promotional activities with Argon 18.
0: That's, I had, that's generally a cool race, that one. It is, yeah. yeah beautiful,
1: beautiful part of the world. Mm. It's a ski resort, but cooler, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then in July, I, I had planned on getting up to Thailand to run a few training camps out of the... Tanya Pura, that oh, training right? resort yep. up there. Yeah, it's great up there. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah. I've never been there, but I've yeah. heard good things about the facilities there. And Fantastic facilities. Yeah, they're yeah. keen to run a few training triathlon specific training camps. Yeah. Although, again, I think the coronavirus has put a lot of uncertainty around people's travel plans and people mm. wanting to commit, and and rightly so. Yeah. So, I think a lot of things are on hold at the moment. But mm. um, yeah, I'll continue to train when I can. Um. You know, typically, as I said, through June, July, August, I'm travelling a lot, and the focus is more promotion than training, but I'll I'll, I'll train wherever I can, so... Yeah, oh, good stuff, mate.
0: Well, that's been great. Thanks for uh, thanks for popping in, and, uh, yeah, we'll hopefully see you in another race pretty soon.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I'll pop up somewhere. Yeah. I'm a glutton for punishment, what can I say? <laughs> I love the sport, and uh, my daughter's getting into it now. She's... um. She's only done a handful of triathlons. She's more more a runner. Yeah,
0: very hope, good runner.
1: Yeah, I hope she wouldn't mind me saying that. But yeah. <laughs> the last two years, she's made it to national all schools for triathlon. So that's mm. coming up for her in two weeks. I'll right. go up to Harvey Bay with her. And I got to ride with her yesterday for the first time. Um, I've done a lot of running with her. And that's one of the reasons I'm still training at the level. I mean, she's at a level now, her running group. Mm. A lot of the best junior runners, I mean, her mm. running group, has 10-year-olds right up to to adults. And some of the best runners for their age group in Australia are there. Yeah, right. So it's really good training for me. Plus, I just love being able to go to training with my daughter and do easy runs with her. And, yeah, I rode with her for the first time yesterday, and um, it's awesome. So, yeah, we'll we'll keep on trucking. I'll keep on training and see what happens.
0: I need to know, when your daughter is running, do you just – quietly
1: watch or are you yelling out how how do you uh i used to get so emotionally into it i was (laughs) yelling in more of a a supportive like yelling and screaming excited yeah then i i guess the the performance side of me i would see things and i would want to pass it on (laughs) but i've also learned that this is her journey and her her thing to do and she does often ask me questions around things um I don't want it to get so that she doesn't just enjoy it she's only she's turning 15 in a few months I just want her to love it I want her to love love to to train and love to race and just love I mean what attracted me into triathlon was it was three cool sports that you got to do outside often we'd race in amazing places swimming biking and running three cool sports that you do in one event Mm. um so, yeah, I just wanted to experience that, and hopefully she that's how she feels about it, but I try not to give too many tips she has she runs in a group and they have a coach and he's awesome yeah. oh and he's he's so good in terms of the way he keeps it fun for the kids, but the training's hard they yeah. they train hard these kids i'm I'm amazed at how these teenagers just turn up and really put their hand in the fire in terms of how hard it is a couple mm. of times a week, and I'm in awe of the kids. Cause I really didn't start into triathlon until I was twenty or twenty-one. I played Mm. soccer for a long time, and to watch these young endurance athletes train, yeah, they're all self-driven. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, Yeah, so mate, I do cheer and I get so excited. I mean, I took her out to Penrith. When was that? About ten days ago. She did New South Wales All Schools, and she finished fourth. She got a flat tire and had to ride a flat tire for five k, but hung in there and yeah. ran, ran up I in the fourth spot and I was all very right. proud of it because the top six made the New South Wales team for, oh, wow. for all schools nationals so awesome yeah, yeah as a dad you know you're very proud watching yeah. and um she asks me questions every now and again and <laughs> I try not to get too technical but I, it's hard for me not to because I'm performance driven you know yeah, I see things yeah. and but yeah I want to keep it fun always for her too always looking for that edge yes yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, good stuff mate well yeah thanks again And we'll uh, be seeing you soon.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been fun.
0: All right, mate.